Listeners, we have a special episode for you today. Now that you've been introduced to Paris and Jimmy, it's time to hear from Jennifer Hillier, the author responsible for this twisted love story. Coming up, Jennifer and actress Brandy Cyrus discuss Jennifer's writing process, true crime inspiration, and more. Hi, I'm Jennifer Hillier, author of the new thriller, Things We Do in the Dark. And hi, I'm Brandy Cyrus. I'm a DJ and podcaster and huge fan of Jenny and her books. Oh, thank you. Right back at you. Um, welcome to this special bonus chapter of The Things We Do in the Dark. Jenny, I'm so excited to hear more about your book and audiobook. As I said, I'm such a big fan and I've read a few of your others and I was so excited to get this one and I'm so thrilled to hear more. I can't thank you enough for your support. I remember when you and Wells were talking about Jar of Hearts on your podcast a couple of years ago. I nearly died. And it was so fun to hear two people that I am a huge fan of talking about anything that I've written. And I'm so glad that you read Little Secrets too. And I could not be more excited that you're here talking with me today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It means so much. Let's start at the beginning here. How did you come up with the idea for this new book? You know, it's always a hard one to answer because I never can pinpoint the exact moment where it became a book. You know, as writers, as a writer myself, I I have lots of ideas and things that might make a good story, but it has to be a seed that grows and most of my seeds don't go anywhere. But I knew I wanted to write about a mother and daughter And I wanted the mother to be evil. I just had a desire to write about a bad mom. And I was watching this Netflix documentary called The Trial of Gabriel Fernandez. It was one of those uh, limited series, four-part, and it was awful to watch. It was about a boy named Gabriel who was eight years old who died because he had an abusive mother. And uh, the mother's boyfriend was also abusive. And they were charged with his murder. And when they did the autopsy on Gabriel, they realized that this kid had sustained a lifetime of abuse, very serious injuries. And even though there were people that knew what was happening to him at home, somehow he fell through the cracks. And nothing was ever done to save him or to get him out of the situation. And so he died. And I was maybe one episode in, and I'm like, you know what, I'm a mom. There's no way I can watch this. This is awful. This is too much. And then I caught myself because I'm like, I think this is the reason why he fell through the cracks is because you don't want to think about it. It's easier to look away. And that got my brain flowing. And I was just kind of like, okay, what would happen if he had lived, for one thing? Would Gabriel grow up to be an abuser like his mom was? And, and what was up with that chick? Anyway, you know, I mean, here's this awful mother who can do this to her, her child. I wanted to know more about her. And so... That's really the inspiration behind uh, Joey and Ruby. Wow. Yeah, it's um, everything you said. I, I watched that documentary on Netflix or docuseries, and, and I had that same feeling reading this book a little bit. You know, there, there were parts of it that were very dark, to, you know, and not to play off the title, but to the point where I almost had a hard time, you know, reading it and not just feeling so incredibly sad for Joey. Um, and then when, you know, when I got to the part where you meet 
Joey's grandmother and you realize that her mom had a bad mom. I was like, what an interesting angle to take it, you know, not only so far as to know that Joey had a bad mom, but to take it one step further and to see how that plays down through generations, I thought was really interesting. Uh, and it really makes you feel for Ruby, which you almost don't want to do because you want to hate her. Um, but it's, I, you know, I like when books can bring out things and you didn't know you could feel for certain characters. And I really like the way that you did that. Oh, thank you so much. You know, Ruby is irredeemable, obviously, right? I mean, despite how she was raised, but there are moments in there where she says something human, you know, and then her realization that she had a bad mom too, you know, was something that stuck with Joey. And I just... I don't know. I'm a mom. And so being a mom is hard every single day. And there are things that you can relate to and things that you absolutely cannot. And so I appreciate you picking up on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Something else I really liked about the story was the podcast element of the plot. Um, I have a podcast, obviously. We've talked about that. Um, And I, since you listen to YFT, I can only assume that you listen to a lot of other podcasts. Do you listen to true crime podcasts? And were any of them inspiration in including that element into this story? Yeah, you know what got me into true crime podcasts was Dirty John. Oh, loved. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about Dirty John until I was watching an episode of Real Housewives of Orange County. (laughs) And one of the housewives had a boyfriend that the other housewives compared to Dirty John. And I'm like, who is this Dirty John? And so I Googled it. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's a podcast. And I was riveted. I mean, it it was a true story. And they had all the facts and information and interviews. But the way that it was structured, it was like a novel, too. You know, they had a narrative arc. They had who the villain was, who the protagonists were. I mean, every episode left me wanting another episode. And I thought, oh, God, I love true crime. And I mean, I've been a huge fan of Dateline and Law & Order, SVU, and everything to do with, you know, crime and murder and, you know, dark stuff. But, I mean, Serial was in their podcast that I've I've loved. But I also like the lighter stuff, too, and I love your podcast, your favorite thing. (laughs) That kind of gives me the balance between the light and the dark. Yeah, well, that's good. We Wells and I always do say that. We say we just want to kind of be like a light space, you know, in the world for people because there is, you know, there is so much out there that if if you want to watch the dark stuff, it's there and the world's crazy. So we just like to be very lighthearted and fun. Um, it's the perfect it's the perfect antidote, right? Because as a thriller writer, we have an obligation to make something horrible sound believable and like it could really happen. And then, of course, you'll get a reader going, that would never happen. But, you know, the stuff that happens in real life is so much worse than the stuff we write about. And so, yeah, the, the lightheartedness that you guys provide is absolutely necessary to keep me <laughs> even keeled. What podcasts are you into? You know, I'm all across the board with podcasts. Uh, I did. I listened to Dear John. Obviously, it was incredible. Um, the other true crime podcast I really enjoyed was Limetown. I hear they're making it a show, a TV show. So we'll see about that. That was a good one. But I also, I listen to podcasts mostly when I'm driving. I think a lot of people do. And I really enjoy the feeling that whoever you're listening to is kind of in the car with you. It almost feels like you're spending time with them, hanging out with them. Um, And I also like to listen to a lot of podcasts that are motivational and a little bit of like self-discovery. I'm really fascinated with things like the Enneagram and personality tests. And so I like to listen to things also that... um, 
that that like you know speak to like my personality and kind of who I am and stuff. But I mean, there's nothing like escaping into something that's fiction. You know, that's why I love a good story. And I'm so old school. Like I prefer to read a paperback book more than anything else. There's just something about it. I know. I love the smell of paper, but I also have discovered audiobooks since the pandemic started because I couldn't focus on reading anything. Yeah. And it was alarming because I would be easily distracted. Um, but going for long walks, having an audiobook in, having a podcast in actually worked for a good two years. And so I'm just happy that that's another option and a way for us to read, although I guess we call it listen. But okay, so I have to ask, I'm afraid of the answer. <laughs> what did you think of Things We Do in the Dark? I wouldn't be sitting here if I didn't love it. Um, I I mean, I'm biased because I love all your stuff. But no, I, I really did enjoy it. It was very different than your other two books, even though it's still that like thriller, you know, crime fiction style. I thought it was very different. There were so many different characters that you really got to know. And I think the thing, too, that was different about this one that I enjoyed was that there were a lot of characters that really kept me guessing, instead of it just being really like one that you're trying to figure out. You know what I mean? So like I truly, up until about halfway through, I was like, did Joey die in that fire? Is my the one pretending to be Paris? Like I couldn't figure it out. And you and I, you knew so little about my in the beginning that it, it almost like helped, you know, feed into that confusion because you don't know anything about her at all. And I so desperately wanted to know more about my. And then once things start to click, it, for me, it clicked like right before it did for Drew, you know, that it was actually the other way around. Um, and I really related to Drew a lot in this story. And I just, I enjoyed his journey too of, you know, like he thought he had life figured out. He was making decisions he thought was right. And then it turns out that, you know, maybe that, that life path wasn't right for him. And so he kind of comes full circle and might makes his way home and makes his way back to Joey. I really enjoyed that. And so I loved like figuring this story out alongside him. Um, but that really kept me guessing. And then also, you know, you have this whole other side story of Jimmy and Jimmy's life. And you, you you get a deep dive into his life, which I can relate to a bit with him being in the entertainment world, you know, and the ups and downs of that. And up until the end, like I couldn't decide what really happened to him either. You know, you've so many characters here that you're getting to know. You have Zoe and you have Elsie and you have Paris, AKA Joey, who you're just finding out so much about every chapter along the way. And I, I was really guessing up until the end, I, I there was something in me that really thought it was Zoe that had, that had ill motivations. And then I was very shocked to find out in the end that it was Elsie. I thought it was Zoe too, to be honest. I was like, it's going to be this Zoe chick, you know, um, she's, she wants something from Jimmy. Why is she hanging around this old retired celebrity guy? Like there's no way that she doesn't have an agenda. Um, and so, but I don't outline my stories. So I surprised myself. <laughs> that is so fascinating. But see, that's why, that's what I think makes it so good. I think, you know, if you went into it having all the answers, then I think maybe the reader along the way would have all the answers too soon. But I think that's fascinating that you don't know what's going to happen either, because I think that's what helps keep the readers guessing. And truly, that's what keeps you engaged in a book, right? You know, I think when you when you start reading a book, I think it's the characters that draw you in. But what keeps you in and keeps you there are the unanswered questions and the suspense and and the not knowing. You know, and there were and there were so many characters I didn't know about until the very end when when it's all revealed. So I I really enjoyed that about it. 
Thank you so much. That is so thoughtful and it's it's just nice to, this is the first real in-depth discussion I've had about things we do in the dark and it's it's really nice to know that the book resonated. That, that means a lot to an insecure <laughs> writer full of self-doubt always to know that it, it was entertaining. Okay, let's circle back to the idea of audiobooks. Do you think about the audiobook when you write? Do you think about someone listening to the story versus reading it? And how is that different than thinking of it as an actual like paperback? When I'm writing the first draft, I don't think about any other version of the book other than what the story looks like on the page to me. And for me, it's very much like an aesthetic thing where I'm looking at my Word document and I'm looking at chunks of narrative and I'm looking at lines of dialogue and I'm paying attention to white space. Because for me as a writer, too much white space could mean the story's too sparse. And then too much words, too many dark lines, might mean that it's slow and it's, it's bloated. So I pay attention to that as I'm writing. And, I, and I'm really just focused on making every sentence and, and every opening and ending of chapters impactful. But in the second draft, third draft, fourth draft, is when I start to really pay attention to the rhythm of the sentences. And so I think for this book, I read the book out loud to myself four separate times from beginning to end, listening for words that tripped up my tongue because I hear voices in my head when I'm reading other people's books. And if the sentence is clunky or if it's too long or if it's too choppy, I will hear that. And sometimes I repeat phrases and don't realize it. And I don't notice that until I'm reading it loud. So at that point, I'm thinking about the audio version, but mainly I'm thinking about it being a smooth reading experience, which I think benefits when the narrator comes in to do what they do um, because it's been smoothed out at least. And there's a rhythm there that I'm hoping that that matches what I feel in my head. Do you ever have anyone else read it back to you before you're finished with it? No. And I wish that I did because I am so weird when it comes to an unfinished book. I'm so protective of it. Not because I think, you know, that it's it's so precious. It's more that until it's fully formed, I'm protective of it getting too much feedback early. And so by the time my editor gets the draft of the book that I'm ready to submit to him, I've written it seven times. And then at that point, he can go ahead and rip it apart and, and do as much editing as notes as he wants to do. But nobody, nobody reads it early, and I need to kind of work on that because I think it would make my life a little bit easier because people would catch things that I don't catch. Because <laughs> I think I've memorized this book by now. I've read it so many times. And then you lose perspective, right? <laughs> That might be not a great part of my process that I need to work on. So what other books, what are you reading, listening to, watching on TV? Anything that's kind of sparking you these days? Oh, gosh. Um, as far as books go, I, I like I said before, like I love that crime fiction, especially, you know, female stories or female-led or with a female hero. I, I mean, I, I think that's really trending right now, and, and I think that's a good thing. Um you know, to hear so many stories from like a female perspective, especially in that crime genre. I think like back in the day, you didn't get that as much. And now, um, I don't know, women are like really having a moment, I think, in, in crime fiction, which is cool. As far as watching, I just started The Staircase on HBO. Ooh, I just watched that. Yeah, which is a good, that's a true, true crime even though it's scripted. And I have yet to watch the documentary, but I heard it's phenomenal as well. And I think you have to be really careful when when so many people do the same story, right? Like it was a documentary and then it, you know, then it was a series and maybe it's a podcast and I don't know about it. But if you 
for me, like I have to watch the scripted version of something first because if I watch the documentary, then it's ruined and the scripted version isn't as good. But if I watch, yeah, if I watch the scripted version of something and then the documentary, it's like I'm getting bonus material, right? It's like I'm getting bonus insight on this like true story. Right, like here are the real, you know, here's how it actually happened in that moment on that day. I know the staircase was so fascinating and the fact that he was a novelist. <laughs> I'm like, what? Everything about it was so crazy that it's one of those things that if I tried to write it, people would be like, there's no way that anyone would believe <laughs> that he didn't murder her. But even by the end, I was like, but did he or didn't he? Yeah, that's that's kind of what I get too, is like everyone that's finished all of it, it feels the same way. And I think like some of my favorite you know, when, especially when it comes to like true crime and stuff, it sounds so dark to say it, but it's the, it's the stories that stick with you, you know, that are just the most compelling. And one of the true, um, one of the true crime shows that I watched that still to this day sticks with me is unbelievable. Did you ever watch that one? No, I haven't watched that one. Oh my gosh. It's on Netflix. And it's actually, um, Tony Collette that's in the staircase. She's in it as well. Uh, and it's a, it's the story of the girl from Denver, Colorado that, you know, somebody broke into her apartment and raped her and no one believed her. Like the evidence, quote unquote, you know, pointed to that there was no break in and there was no this and that, and there was no evidence. And so literally the police wouldn't take her seriously. She was a young kid. Um, and then, you know, if you watch the whole thing, you find out that this guy was doing this all over Colorado and he, he had read all these books about like how to get away with, with crimes. Like he had checked books out of a library that, you know, that, um, were written from the perspective of like a detective or something so that he could get around it all. It's fascinating, but also horrifying. And to this day, that story sticks with me. Like I'll think about those girls all the time. So you have to re- you have to watch that one. That's going on the top of my list because I, I love the premise of that, but also I love Tony Collette. <laughs> yes, yeah, she's amazing. Like she can do no wrong. So, um, so Jenny, are there any hidden like gems or Easter eggs in this book that readers and listeners may not have noticed the first time around? Do you do you do that? Do you put Easter eggs in your stories? I, I do not intentionally, but then I read it back and realize, oh, you know, I, I dropped something in there for someone who's read the previous book or a book before that. All of my books are set in the same fictional Seattle world. And there have been places that have been in my books from the very beginning. And so one of one of the coffee shops I mentioned in um, Things We Do in the Dark is called The Green Bean. And it's also in Little Secrets as the coffee shop where Kenzie works. And so The Green Bean is actually, it was a real place. It was a coffee shop here in my hometown of Oakville, Ontario, Canada. And I used to go there by myself all of the time. It was one of the places I felt good going by myself too, (laughs) where I didn't feel like I needed company. And then it closed and I was so devastated. And so I started writing about it in my books almost as a love letter to my memories of it. And that pops up quite a bit. And uh, there's a Cuban restaurant, um, again, one that popped up in Little Secrets that Derek was part owner of that, again, is referenced in the new book. But I think a lot of the gems will be mostly familiar to Toronto readers. Um, This is the first book that's ever been set in Canada for me, partially. And I've always been nervous to write about Toronto, thinking that I would not do it justice or that I would... It's almost too familiar. And I worried that the nuance of the city would not get expressed well in a book. But I just felt compelled this time. And there's an area of Toronto where Joey lives with her mother. Willow Park is what I called it. Um, And it's based on a neighborhood that I lived in with my mom. Um, after my mom and dad separated. 
And readers who lived in Toronto back in the 90s will know that area as Etobicoke, which is a very difficult name to um, look at and pronounce. But then Toronto amalgamated with four other, five other cities. And so now everything is called Toronto. So I didn't bother to call it Etobicoke. I just called it Toronto. But everything about the Lakeshore Strip, um, I remember from my time in the 90s there. And the strip club, the Golden Cherry, is loosely inspired by the House of Lancaster, which was an iconic strip club um, back in Toronto. And I mean, there are a lot of things that even the Jamaican restaurant that, um, that drew frequents is a blend of several places that were within walking distance from where I lived. And so, and I, so I think when people read it, they're going to recognize, oh, that was West Toronto in the 90s. I remember how that lake smelled back then. You know, they've cleaned it up since, but back then it was very working class and had a very different vibe than it does today. Yeah, that's interesting because I was curious as I was reading uh, actually about those two places specifically, I think because you described them in detail so well. And so I, I was like, I wonder if these are places she's been in real life and she's given them different names and modeled it after that. So so that's true, right? You, those are two places that you've been into. and I have been in strip clubs before. <laughs> In my wayward youth, not as a dancer, but I actually had two high school friends who went on to become dancers, and um, and and this was twenty years ago. But listening to their stories of what it was like working in the clubs, you know how that how they get paid, um, and hearing sort of the rumors of things that could be done for money that aren't legal but happen, it was kind of fun actually diving into that world, um, which is so unfamiliar to me, but a reality for a lot of people. You know, and I think the strip club industry has all but died out now, um, at least here and during COVID, too. But it was it was interesting to go back because I think in the 90s it was such a, it was a thing. And in that area of Toronto, there was one every three or four blocks from each other. It was just this hot spot for gentlemen's clubs. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it was it was fun going back. It was a little bit cathartic for me, too, to write about it. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it was fascinating because, I mean, I've never stepped foot in a strip club, to be honest with you. And so I never. And so I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Like, this is so detailed. And I was like, how does she know all the ins and outs of this? I have to ask. Yeah, it's it's definitely fascinating to, like, see, you know, that world from the perspective of, like, the girls that work there and make a living doing that. It was definitely interesting. And how things become normalized over time. Yeah. You know, and even Joey's experience of being kind of appalled initially when she started at the things that she had to do and then, you know, very quickly becoming acclimated and suddenly being naked is par for the course. And, you know, and working there is just another day at work, coming home with tired feet like any other job, you know. Um, it was it was cool. It was fun. And I did a lot of research into strip clubs and that was a rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, and Asian Street Kings as well because... Uh, there's a character in the book named Vinny, who is um, one of the boyfriends of the strippers. And he was part of an Asian street gang, which is fictional. But a lot of the other ones I mentioned were not. And, and they were rampant in Chinatown in Toronto back in the 90s. And there was a lot of violence back then. And it was fun to research that too, you know, to kind of go back and go, wow. And they're, I'm sure they're still in operation today, a lot of them. Wow. Yeah, see, so there's just so many stories that you really dive into in this book. It's just all across the board. I'm just so impressed. Oh, thank you. I worry that I've I painted Toronto as more gritty than it actually is because it's really, it's, it's a very beautiful city and not everybody is, you know, shady. <laughs> but in this particular book, there's a lot of shady characters from, from Toronto. I think every city has its grittiness to it if you go looking for it. 
If you look at the underbelly, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think that's an accurate way to look at it. Was writing this book different from writing any of your others? It really was. Um, not that I expected it to be. You know, I had started writing words and fleshing out an idea in 2019, was making great progress, and was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get this big book in early this time. Um, and then the pandemic hit in 2020, and I didn't write anything for probably 10 straight months. I couldn't focus, couldn't read. Um, Netflix became my best friend. Audiobooks became my best friend. But when I finally got back to it, I couldn't remember what I was trying to say. I had probably 50,000 words, which is about half the length of a novel. And I'm like, I, I don't remember what the point was I was trying to make or what these characters want. And I ended up throwing out 35,000 of those words, which is a third of a book. Whoa. Getting it back down to a bare bones, 10, 15,000 words and starting over. And that sucked. And I hope to never have to do that again. But it was challenging, you know, virtual school for my, my first grader, my husband, who has a very loud voice that carries all over the house, was working from home. And usually I write alone in very quiet space. So that was definitely the challenge. But at the same time, this particular book was also exhilarating to write because it feels personal to me. And, you know, as, as fiction writers, we're supposed to say everything is made up. But I mean, the truth is a lot of it comes from somewhere. And so if Joey in particular, she's a first-generation Canadian. Her mom is an immigrant from the Philippines. And she looks Filipino but doesn't speak it, which is me. And so writing about that experience growing up felt very personal to me. And I felt very vulnerable writing the book, almost as if if there are aspects of Joey's life that people don't like, it feels like you don't like my life, <laughs> which is not how it is. But... I don't think I've ever injected more of myself into a character than I did Joey. You know, and thank God I don't have Joey's mom. But it, Filipino culture, it was the first time I'd ever written in depth about a Filipino family and really, you know, about the experiences and, and what it's like when they first come to Canada and talking to my mom about how she felt when she first came to Canada. You know, a lot of it, I felt very vulnerable. One of those times where vulnerability really pays off, though. I hope so. You know, we... we it feels like when you write a book, you're, you're stripping naked and standing in a glass booth and inviting people <laughs> to give opinions on you naked. It feels very similar. I think, not that I've ever done that, but I imagine it would feel very, I feel very exposed when I publish a book. Um, eventually it goes away, but I mean, I felt exposed the whole time I was writing this one. So whether that makes it better or worse, I guess we'll find out. I think that's a very similar feeling to songwriters. Like when you write a song, you know, for the most part, people write from a very like personal place. And when you do that, I, you know, when I've done that in the past, I've had that very similar feeling of, oh, well, I'm putting my whole self out there. And if somebody doesn't like this, then they don't like me. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how it feels. Very intimidating. Yeah. It's an extension of you, right? An expression of yourself. Ah, the life of being a creative. <laughs> Not for the faint of heart, honestly. Yeah, and, and the thing that makes you vulnerable, though, is also the thing that makes you good, right? And the thing that, that your sensitivity is like your superpower, but also your kryptonite. Um, and so it's always that fine balance of knowing how much to reveal 
and being prepared for what comes when you do. Yeah. I think authenticity too is something people are really drawn to. So, you know, you being vulnerable enough to put that authenticity into Joey, you know, like so many similarities from yourself and your background, I think probably makes her a very relatable character and such a deep, you know, there's such a depth to her that I think is very enjoyable to like read about her story and you root for her because of that depth, you know? Yeah. It was like breaking my own heart writing about Joey. Um, and, and some of the scenes were really dark and in earlier drafts, they were even darker than what you read in the finished novel. Um, and I have to kind of go there in order for me to know what it is I'm trying to say. And then in edits, you know, a lot of the really heavy stuff can be taken out, leaving just a snapshot of what happened. But the writing of it, you know, kind of guts you a little bit. But I think when it does, that's when you know you've gotten to the heart of it, right? Like when you've gotten right to the nugget of what that is. So I know it sounds crazy because Things We Do in the Dark is just coming out. But do you have any other projects that you're working on? Is there anything coming up for you that's on your radar? Uh, the dreaded what are you working on next question. <laughs> And it's funny because I've learned, I learned a long time ago that you have to be working on something or at least say that you are or people get really nervous when they think like, well, you're not working on anything new. There's nothing else coming. Um, no, I've started a new book, thank God. And, but it's very early and um, my process is very confusing, even to me, where I'll write a lot of stuff before I even know what the story is. Like even with Things We Do in the Dark, I was three quarters of the way through it um, and I wrote it completely out of order before I understood what it was I was trying to say and who really, who the story was about. So that's the same case here. It's very early, but I am working on another thriller. And I think this time around, I'm thinking about a brother and a sister. And it will be, you know, another psychological thriller, something really dark and hopefully emotional with complex characters and all that good stuff. But I'm, I'm ready to get back to writing. You know, it, I've had a little bit of a break while doing um, things to launch this book. And so I miss the creative side a lot. I can feel when that's when I'm ready to get back in. And so that's happening. Do you have tons of ideas floating around your head and you just kind of like pick one or one floats to the surface or do you literally start from scratch? I wish I had that. You know, I have writer friends who have an idea like every day and they have a notebook mm -hmm. and they complain about being distracted by all these new ideas. And I'm like, man, I get one idea Every other year, if I'm lucky, it may not even be a good idea, but I will wring that idea until there's nothing left. Um, it just doesn't work for me that way. I don't there. I have thoughts and I have little specks of, of, of you know, images that I can see. But I know I get really it's one idea at a time and I will I will work it to death until a story comes out. What about you? How does that work for you creatively? I'm a very one thing at a time kind of person, I feel like. Even though I, I do multiple things all at the same time, I have to really focus on whichever one is in front of me at the time. So yeah, like right now, you know, I, I have your favorite thing podcast, which has been going now for, I want to say like four years or so. Like we've been doing it a really long time. It's been so great that it's kept going and that we have such a great fan base. But I, I have ideas actually for another podcast and I'm not far enough along to talk about it yet. Um, but hopefully that's something that I'm going to launch next year because um, I really enjoy podcasting a lot. 
And um, I enjoy the connection that you have with your listeners. I think it's different than followers on social media. You know, I, I think social media, everything's just through a lens, right? And when you're listening to a podcast, like there's no filter, it's just you listening to this other person. And I think there's a very interesting level of connection there. And, um, and I enjoy that a lot. I think it's a great way to connect with people. So hopefully more of that. I think podcasting is so intimate. Yes, it is. You know, you, you feel like you're there in the room and you're having this conversation and it feels like it's personal to you when you're listening to it. And I totally agree that you don't get that experience on social media. It feels very um, comfortable for some reason to open up, you know, when, when you're not, especially without a camera on you. That's, I think that's one thing I really enjoy about doing audio stuff is, um, I don't know, you kind of just take away that whole layer of, oh my gosh, do I have enough makeup on? Do I look tired today? You know, all that's gone. And it's just, you strip down to just like you and who you are and as a person, which I think is really great. Do you and Wells look at each other while you're doing your podcast? Yes, but Wells and I have known each other long enough now that when we when we don't look our best, it's okay. We still love each other, you know? <laughs> yeah, but hopefully more of that. Um, I DJ full-time, and so that's – DJing is kind of my escape, right? It's just fun. It's creative in, in a way, but it's also um, just something really fun to do. I enjoy, you know, creating an atmosphere where other people can have fun and let loose and um, – and just have like a little bit of escape from the real world and the stress of life and everything. So that's fun for me. So more DJing, hopefully more podcasting in my future. Sounds fantastic. Congratulations on all of it. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed listening to author Jennifer Hillier and Brandy Cyrus talk about Jennifer's new audiobook, Things We Do in the Dark. To hear the whole audiobook, pre-order a copy here.